I've journeyed deep into the fade in ancient ruins and battlefields to see the dreams of lost civilizations. I've watched as hosts of spirits clash to reenact the bloody past in ancient wars both famous and forgotten. Every great war has its heroes. I'm just curious what kind you'll be. And welcome back to the Footy Dashi Podcast. I am Nicholas, and I am here with Lauren. Lauren, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing good, Nicholas. Thank you for asking. So we invited Lauren on today um, as a special guest. <laughs> I am my own special guest on my own podcast. Well, you are kind of like a special guest today because you're not here just because you are your wonderful self, but you're here because you're also your specific wonderful self. Because today we're going to be talking about level design. Yay! I'm excited. I haven't been a level designer in a while, but I love level design a lot. And when I get really into my systems design work and I'm like, why did I ever choose this path? I dream. (laughs) I dream about level design. And then I talk to our level designers at work and I'm like, you know, I chose right. Back to systems. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, I wish I could go back to my youth. You know, my those, those heady early days when I was like, Every day was a struggle. Wait, every day was a str- no. I don't want to go back to that. No, I don't. I don't want to go back. To that. I, I lied. I lied. But I do. Like, there's a part of me that I I do love it. And I'm I work in Unreal Engine right now, and the the tool set's just great for for level designers. Yeah. But then when you actually dig into the level design about it, you're you realize the tool set's not that great for level designers. And then you you go. I, I'm a systems designer, so I go back to making tools. Right. Yeah. Uh, not for level designers. I'm sorry. Uh, but that's a little too <laughs> out of my my wheelhouse. You are beyond me now. <laughs> like I'm beyond you. You're beyond me. <laughs> you're uh, no, they need engineering help. They need yeah, that's, help. yeah, that's true. So, but in light of our previous free episode, which you can, you know, well, if you're listening to this podcast, you already know where you can find that episode. Uh, we talked about how to basically how not to talk about the is question, like what is something, and so today. Instead of asking, like, what is a level in a game? I want to ask, like, how is a level produced? And I thought, what better way to do that than to ask someone who has produced levels? Yay, and to, levels! <laughs> and to talk about the, the the social process. So, Lauren, I'm giving you free reign. You can begin anywhere. Like, where, where do y'all start? Where do y'all usually begin? So, I will start, I guess, at a level designer's beginning. Um, and this would actually probably come after, right, game direction, like what kind of game are you trying to make or what's the experience you want to make, right? This maybe could come before or after what is the uh, feel of the game, the tone of the game, the images, right, 2D, 3D, like et cetera, et cetera. So I start on paper. I do map design. So when I made maps or when I made – and a map is a very – I guess high level way of saying any type of space 
in the world. And I'm going to say it like that because a map for many of you who play multiplayer games like Valorant or like Call of Duty, right? A map is like the arena in which you have combat. But a map could also be, right, like a single player level in an Uncharted game or in Tomb Raider. That could be a map. Um, In some engines, it's referenced as a map. In Unreal, it's a U-map, an Unreal map. And that just comes from Unreal Tournament. But in other engines, it's described as a unit, which is then always really funny because then you go, well, what's their measure of distance? And Unreal, a measure of distance is a unit. Um, So, (laughs) yeah, vocabulary is great, everybody. Uh, You know, and it's really standardized across the energy uh, industry as well. So so the standardization just really helps you when you want to go to one company to the other. And then, you know, you walk from one and you're like, oh, everything's measured in pixels. And someone's like, you mean a Gexel, right? Like, no, (laughs) no. Oh, God. Uh, All right. So I start with a map design. And so when I say map, I do mean like a level, an experience. It could be anything from, say, a social hub. So the map is um, a large, just wide circular space. And now I need to just place lots of details inside of that. Or it could be something like in Crisis 2, where you have things that are vertical, you have things that are horizontal. So I'm actually going to use Crisis 2 because I'm really proud of that level. But also because I actually didn't really design a level like you would think I leveled. I, de- I would design a level. Um, I say this because everything was already prefabricated. And my level was literally three, let's see, three rectangles and a box. <laughs> so when a level, when you are a level designer and you produce something or you need to produce something to quality, you can look at a map and a lot of early white box things on paper. And it would be like, this is the vertical, like say, rectangle or like it was an l shape it goes into this other l shape that l shape breaks it goes into an alleyway and then it ends at a box and (laughs) then you have to go off into another little l shape corridor yeah and honestly at the end of the day that is your entire say map design yeah then the next step is going okay what's in those right what are the twists and turns what's a potential player pathway okay and then for me i do player pathing and so i go okay, there's going to be a row of tables and you can jump over those tables. You could run around those tables. You could jump over some, run around others, right? Yeah. And if that was it and there's only traversal, you now have a space that says, hey, there's some awesome stuff here. In that first L-shaped corridor, what I did was you go into the L-shape and you see a teddy bear with blood on it. And a man with a okay, shotgun hole got, in his chest. This, this got dark very Sorry, quick. This got really dark. <laughs> this level de- Hapless right. level designers had a bad day at work. And this level designers had a bad day at work. So this is all on paper, okay? I yeah. haven't even actually gotten to the level yet. I'm like, look, is there? are there these things, right? Yeah. Like, this is going to take place. So now, right, just from saying that, you're like, this got dark quick. So now you're like, this is not a platformer level. Maybe, maybe it no. still is a platformer. But, like, when you go into the space, you are getting this story. And that's because I really infuse context and story into my actions and kind of foreshadowing. Like, I why say, is? I, yeah. I would I would add actually maybe you didn't quite realize this, but like there's another thing that you have like happened upon, which is that it also happens to me all the time. Actually, when I describe <laughs> my process at work, what did I happen upon? You also like basically said without saying that there was a mood that you that you create as as well. Like it's not yes, just, okay. There is a subjective experience there that's really important. Yeah. So as part of the production process, at least for me as a level designer, there are, I guess there are kind of like the three key axes. It's like, what are the, what's the high level kind of experience or transitional period that your level is going for or the map? 
right? Yeah. Now, this is definitely more single player design, but you could also do this in multiplayer design as well. And we'll get into that um, later. Yeah. Uh, from that is that high level, right? That's the rectangles, like the the mount of the space. And originally, when I planned the level that I'm, this is a concrete level that I have designed in the past. So when I originally planned this level, I said I wanted to create an amazing experience in one lane. What that means is in one rectangle, I wanted to create an amazing experience. What I realized and discovered after trying to do one alleyway fight was that you actually ended up creating multiple alleyways in one alleyway, and also. A corridor is not the most engaging player experience. <laughs> no. Yay. Not, not I mean, really. I was just starting out, guys. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we, gotta, you know? we, we have to forgive Lauren. Lauren, like, Lauren is a noob at one point, just like the rest of us. I was a noob at one point at the rest of us. I mean, it was really <laughs> fun, but it felt like it was missing something. And it was. It yeah. really was missing like a climax to the level. And so then I added a square at the end, and that was the boss fight. Because every square is okay. really just a circle inside of it. Right, because no one wants to go to the wait, wait, Okay, wait, wait. <laughs> back, okay. back up about um, twenty feet. <laughs> Everything is just a square with a circle. Uh, when you, when I, when I design levels, uh, a boss arena. If you've ever played an, if you've ever played an arena map, or you've played Devil May Cry, and you get to that boss section, yeah, you always circle the boss, right? Oh, okay. So, so even though your room might be a square or a rectangle or a hex or a sphere or a dome, or you're in space, like. The yeah. circling mechanic of the boss is just something that you do in a lot of boss battles. Okay, so that makes sense. Yeah. I put a square on my map, but I put debris and like things, and I was like, "Look, now it's a circle." And then <laughs> you, and then because I, I, uh, I am a player choice designer, that means I always put player choice into my levels. You could engage the boss, or you could have just run past him. I was like, "Yeah, that is a." Because uh, in the game that I was creating, there was a stealth or combat. So if you were combat focused, you'd probably want to kill the boss and get the rewards because he gave really good weapons. But if you're stealth focused, you don't care about weapons. And so you would stealth through him. And that also feels like a very cool experience. Yeah. So so the first part I'm going to say is the high level right area. What's the space that your player is in? Yeah. Right. Um, the second. So if it's not just about the space. Right. The second is also then what are the avenues in which the player moves within that space? Okay. And then I guess third third for me is also, right, the mood of that space is going to determine how the player moves within that space. And that's, yeah. for, that's for me. Um, and I would say that that mood right there, while it is also something that is very concrete to single-player level design, in multiplayer level design, I believe that mood is really important for players to understand the context of where and how they are fighting against other players or maybe in an MMO right a dungeon like the mood of what is the feeling and ambiance you get even if you're just blaring through a right linear space yeah right what is actually going on in that space with other players how are the other players going to move around you yeah um and th that could be even be in like Diablo three, like in all of theirs, where like they each area has that mood, and you're supposed to talk about that mood with your your party members, yeah. even if you don't actually have voice chat on. Like there's something where people are like, oh, that person's checking out the dead teddy bear right in the in the level. Oh, this yeah. is weird. If you're playing with your friends, you're gonna be like, did you see that guy neck with the shotgun next to him and he was dead? Like, are we supposed to think that, or <laughs> or was this just like? Is that a yeah. revelant? Like, yeah, what's yeah, going yeah. on here, right? And then also in a multiplayer space, say there are tables, right? There are the tables in this level that I talked about that players are going to traverse around. Yeah. Well, 
in this space, say someone just rams through the tables because they have that trait or that skill. Well, now the person coming after them doesn't have the option, right? That option was taken from yeah, them. It's true. But now, now they can move around the tables or jump over them differently. Maybe they can use them as cover. Well, there's an interesting point there, which is that sort of like, but having the option, so like, let's say you have like one type of player character who has the ability to sort of like destroy features of the environment. And as you say, you know, they just like blast through the tables in many ways, then they are sort of a component almost accidentally of the level design for the person who follows because yes. they have then sort of altered the, the the space through which that next person is going to move. And so strangely, then the play, the first player in this multi, sort of co-op slash multiplayer environment becomes a feature of the level in a, yep. in a really interesting way. I, I like that example. It's really cool. No, absolutely. I mean, for me, so I do want to point out that I mentioned these in order in that in the way in which I was talking to everyone who's listening to this podcast, that's the order I decided to go in. There are many times where someone will give you, hey, we're making a horror level, right? That's the mood now. And it's going to be in this environment an artist has created, right? Well, so now I get to choose what type or what flavor of horror and I get to choose how the maybe the player moves right in that space but i don't actually get to choose exactly like right the actual physical assets maybe right and that's different versus than say a white box or uh that's very different than say in a lot of um levels where you are expected to create a backdrop for which art will look at and you're like hey this is where the vending machine aisle is and the players actually interact with one of them and it opens up into a secret corridor And then that goes downstairs, right? Versus if the artist has said, hey, here's a bunch of vending machines and arcade machines, right? And uh, I gave you an attic. Well, now suddenly you can't go downstairs. You've got to go upstairs. Like, and that's where the production process comes into making levels is that did your artist give you something first or did your creative director give you a mood or did your art director give you a mood? Or if you have a lot of freedom like I had in the beginning of this podcast episode, then or like in my example, I yeah. could basically do whatever I wanted. And I said, hey, I'm going to do these three things. Oh, by the way, guys, I didn't, I forgot to mention that I was creating a mood at the beginning. Yeah. My mood was very specific to this post-apocalyptic, you know, world where yeah. like there is no, there is no child you see, but there is obviously something has happened where this father has had to do something terrible or, or who knows what. And this is actually yeah. a zombie apocalypse also setting as well, like because that's what Crisis <laughs> yeah. 2 was in. So I made this level yeah. in Crisis 2. Or yeah. CryEngine 3, the game was Crisis 2. Yeah. So, so actually, actually <clears throat> so there are, there's a lot there that I want to pick apart. The, the, the first one is I want you to talk a lot more about sort of like the thing that is probably not obvious to people, which is the construction of mood or sort of like the, the subjective experience that is created because it's really easy to get bogged down in talking about sort of like production in these kind of like, I don't know, overly technical ways where it's like, Oh, well the volume has to be this big and like you have to put things here and here and here, and it has to have like this pathing, but mood is something that is much more like, in other words, like when I think of the like the hypothetical hapless level designer that we invented way back, and I don't remember what episode it was, like to me, that person has a very thankless task, 
because in many ways their their job, at least as I conceived it at the time, was kind of like rote and mm-hmm. very like technical, as I said before. But what you're saying is no, actually it's not it is technical, but the the technical experience that you need is to the service of some far more like creative and fundamentally like open way of doing things. So I want this you to talk. Defi- yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say this is definitely my, I don't want to be like my way of doing things because I know a lot of designers and yeah. like art directors and engineers that all think this way, right? Yeah. But it definitely is. When I did level design, I was thankfully in places where I was very much like, this is the mood or this is the area that we created. Or yeah. I was working with someone who, even if they did an amazing map design, were, was like, oh, what is actually the context for this? Because we made this giant lava level, but we need some more of that subjective mood experience in these places. Yeah. And so they asked my opinion, knowing that that was something that I was very good at. Um, this actually borders on something that could be artists or design, right? Depending, because it does take, yeah. it takes a designer's mentality to do it. So when I say an artist or a designer, I just mean what the person's title at a AAA studio would be. I yeah. do not mean what their... Uh, proclivity towards like game design or mood setting is Uh, just so that we're clear uh, everybody that's listening to the podcast because I don't (laughs) want to get caught up in technicalities and I want you all to know that artists use principles of design just like designers use principles of art and we're we're all a good maloo okay (laughs) (laughs) I mean it's it's games okay like you're creating a subjective experience you you need to know subjectivism which is also a form of like (laughs) which is art yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Okay, so for me, it's definitely my, kind of my love is this, and it borders on something called environmental storytelling. So if you look up a GDC talk, um, I think that was done in 2016, maybe 2014, it's really, really popular. It's the principles of environmental storytelling, and it's all about from uh, Dead Space, one of, the, I think, one of the Dead Space developers, but I definitely one of the Bioshock developers. And they talk about how environmental storytelling is something where it's not just an area of, right, the physical location, right, of that teddy bear and the placement of, say, like a uh, like a dead NPC or like, like a civilian. It's about also how does the player, once the player leaves that space or enters that space, what has the player done that has created an environmental storytelling? And so you actually touched on it when you said the player becomes a feature of someone else's story in multiplayer, yeah. where when they've pushed all of those tables away, you know someone has been there. That is now a story that is being told to you by the environment, yeah. right? So when I create the mood or I create that subjective experience, it's really important for me to understand both what am I showing in that space has happened. So this can influence something. So this can kind of get the, what I'm trying to say is it gets the player prepared for whatever is about to happen. And this is a lot harder in a multiplayer space because you're never aware of what is going to happen next in say like a pvp like valorant space yeah but players with abilities do in the moment right with valorant like they can create barriers or they can create um i think like these bubble like bubbles right yeah 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 and to oversimplify it again as i am want to do for everyone high level it basically is a barrier is a line okay it's a square and a bubble as you are imagining is a circle and so both it's a circle inside a square it's circle inside a square. Um, but if you have a, any sort of like, if you had a corridor or a hallways or a door and you put up a barrier, suddenly you are now creating right a dead zone. You can't cross that barrier. If you create a bubble, 
right? You're saying there's a circle you cannot enter, or rather there's a circle you pass through, but something happens. It creates an area of denial. And so in these ways, right, multiplayer spaces have the players be features. But when it comes to mood setting, right, that's kind of like the feature aspect of design that I think that you were pointing on that I really like, because it changes a physical space that I, the level designer, have created. And that's the way the player changes my map design. Yeah. But when we look at the mood of that environment is very highly combative and highly like conflict. It's yeah. constant decision making. It's very overstimulating versus yeah. mood mood setting and maybe of a more single player or a more relaxed environment, even if it's multiplayer, would be running around and seeing like just little interact points right throughout a level yeah. um, well, or seeing well, like a broken vase versus like next to a regular vase. Yeah. Right. And I think part of that is because in a single player experience, you have the luxury of time, unless the game is actually like forcing you to do things with like, you know, a timer of some kind. You have the luxury of just like, you know, if you're, I don't know, like, let's say you're playing, you know, the the recently released Mass Effect in its super high, like, absolute graphic fidelity. And, you know, you played the game back when, when the graphic fidelity wasn't great, but you have the time to just be like, wow, this looks really pretty now. And you just like stare at textures. For like an hour. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say single player definitely has that area of time, but there's an aspect of level design that I haven't really touched on, which was the the runouts. And yeah. so that's a lo- area where there is time pressure because the level is falling around you. Oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. Right? And so for those, you're not worried about like the textures or anything, but there is this very inscripted moment where you do need to right run through that area in order to like, avoid the avalanche or you know, uh, jump around to deny the earthquake or even like in a, a platform, a very simple platformer like Celeste where you've done one jump and you suddenly mid jump realize that there actually wasn't a, like a brick there yeah. or, or an area and you need to actually like, you know, fall to jump back up again or something crazy like that. Yeah. And so that's, that's like a simple, uh, I don't want to say simple because it's actually a very complex and beautiful design. But, well, it is simple, but 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 the simplicity lends itself to a kind of like refinement. Right. It is. You know what? It yeah. is a simple. It is a simple example. Yeah. But it is a very deep. Yeah. Um, exactly. Execution and deep and complexity of how the player could respond to that. That exactly. is a great way of putting it. Yeah. Versus, say, a Tomb Raider run out, where right, Lara is physically you're just continuing to run and you have to use all these different mechanics. Is a yeah. very complex run out, but at the end of the day, there is only one way right to to do that or some of the best ones i think in rise of the tomb raider were ones where there were actually multiple ways right there was the and if you played a certain play style instead of say using i think it was like using the ice hook or just jumping you could just jump there was one where if you found if you were trained you had already been training to use grapple or you had already trained your body your 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 brain right and your motor reflexes to do that you could actually grapple around and skip a lot of the run out and get out faster no okay it was something like that but it was very it was because of the nature of AAA, I will say that some levels are passed from one level designer to the other. So while if I started a level, it would have this mood in this context that would kind of become innate to the level and maybe another level designer would get it. And maybe the combat would feel a little strange in that space because like I'm having this right reflective like mood in the level and suddenly the combat feels off. Well, now yeah. there's dissonance between the level designs that I've created because I did one and then I got someone else's and suddenly there's all this mood or maybe the combat's less like that's why usually in AAA development you don't have those levels turning around, but sometimes levels just get handed to different level designers. And that's where hapless level designer comes in. 
Yeah. Where yeah, he's yeah. been given something that he's not really good at, but he has to finish it. And he's like, I really, I really need to change this because it doesn't work. And also, hey, maybe it does work, but it doesn't work with my skill set. Please give me something that works with my skill set. <laughs> right? And, and sometimes yeah. you just can't do that. But if you ever have felt like there is disparate between levels or some levels are great and others aren't, that's why at least like way back in the day when there were only like five level designers on the team, people could say, oh, right, like Clint Hawking's levels, like his are great because he owned that level and he curled the direction from start to finish. Yeah. Like the original Bioshock game has a lot of like the lead level designer of this level really yeah. wanted to show this. But what you'll yeah. notice is every single one of those level designers had the three that I mentioned, like the space, how you moved, right? The objectives, but also the mood because every Bioshock level had a mood. And yeah. that's, that's, I, yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question, but if you. It, it, well, it not only answers my question, but it also sort of leads me to another topic of conversation that I wanted to have, which is that, so you, you alluded earlier to the idea of sort of like having level design be like narrative driven. And I know for you, narrative is a very, very broad concept, but Bioshock is a really good example of how like any individual, because I mean, because it has open world-y-ish qualities to it, but it also mm -hmm. does have like segmented areas that definitely feel like levels. But each of those like segmented zones definitely feels like it has a story that hasn't just been like mapped on top of it, but rather like the the level itself is this like emergent quality of the story yeah and so I, I so i actually want you to talk a little bit more about that the way in which you sort of like you don't think of like the the level as this blank slate that you just impose whatever upon but you think of the level as something that sort of emerges within this like larger system if you will that is being produced yeah absolutely no that actually like aligns exactly with with kind of my philosophy of that larger system like a game is really just a system of interconnected mechanics and actions, or a mechanic is an action the player can take. So a system, right, the game experience as itself is just a bunch of mechanics with contexts, right? Yeah. And the context for why you use things can be a mechanical context. I have a pickaxe, I mine some ore, so I must see an ore in order to mine it, right? That's the environment now. Yeah. But largely... There's this underlying, right, contextual web of why. Why are you mining? Exactly, right? yeah. yeah. And so I think for me, like, that, that is kind of the crux of the level designer's problem, which is why level design can become one of the funnest things you will ever do and also one of the, <laughs> right, the most frustrating things that you will ever do yeah. is because if you're missing that foundational lever, level uh, from your creative director, or from your own internal creative direction, you will very quickly see your level fall apart. Because yeah. you're like, the mechanics will be fun. Maybe the combat will be fun. Mining will be really fun. I don't know how you did it, but mining is super fun. And yeah. you know, right, that copper and tin make bronze. And like, you've got it all down. But yeah. now people are going to ask you, well, why can't this just be a menu? Because the yeah. menu part is really fun. Because the mechanics are fun and the system <laughs> of creating bronze is fun. Yeah. And then the more that I bronze I create, the more people go, yeah, you did it, right? But why do yeah. I need to actually traverse from the city to that mining pit to mine it? Yeah. Like nobody wants to commute to work. You are now <laughs> making me work. Yeah. And that's the level designer's job is to give that underlying foundation context for why you want to go to work, why you want to yeah. play the game. Right? Well, that's an interesting or why yeah. playing that game is actually fun. 
Well, and that's an interesting point because, as you noted, like, especially like resource gathering in games is often extremely tedious. And as as you were describing that, I was trying to think of an example of a game where I felt like resource gathering isn't tedious. And I actually couldn't think of one. Yeah, I can't really think of one either. And honestly, that's like the level designers like, well, I can think of one and I don't play it. And it's called (laughs) Minecraft. No, it's like tedious that, in Minecraft too. Is it, it tedious is, in Minecraft? It's okay, really I thought the game was just basically like anyway. Uh, so I will not bring <laughs> yeah. that up. I will bring up a couple of things though. So those of you who who know, you know that I believe narrative is both the encapsulation of systems mechanics within a game, but I also right believe narrative is story. So let's go into a specific example just to give you guys the story and the narrative and like the emotional conflict that you guys are going. But Lauren, like, what's a level? that has an amazing emotional underlying direction and an amazing narrative direction and amazing narrative everywhere you look, but still <laughs> falls apart as a level. And I oh. am so happy to tell you <laughs> that it is the hinterlands in Dragon Age Inquisition. Ah, yes. That's <laughs> I 100% agree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that level design is honestly amazing. Like that level is great. And yeah. I do consider the hinterlands a level. You're going, but it's an open space. Hey, it's still a level, right? Yeah. It is still an area and a region. And it was probably created by multiple level designers. But Lauren, yeah. you said that sometimes multiple level designers create disparate experiences. <laughs> yes, they do. Hapless game designer that wants to be here. I love, I love, I love how you, you, you have both like become hapless level designer and you are also like hapless level designer's boss. I am. I am both. Because like when you are your own level designer and honestly, if you are given empowerment at any studio work at or you're writing your own project, you are both your boss and like the peon like you are (laughs) telling yourself right yeah uh the things that you don't want to hear so that you can do the work so that then you can congratulate yourself later oh yes good job lauren (laughs) you did it so the hinterlands is an amazing example of really great underlying narrative because even though it was done by a lot of disparate level designers and a lot of different quest designers all at a different time that narrative is so consistent in the hinterlands. It is just yeah. beautiful. And there's so much and each section of the level builds up, not just over the game's course of time. Like if you come back to hinterlands after you've completed the yeah. game, it is actually a different experience than when you started. And yeah. this is true for not just the hinterlands, say, overall level. It is true for every quest. You can finish the game without ever doing an optional quest. And it will start off with, who are you? Why are you here to, oh my gosh, wait, you're the person that did X, Y, Z, whatever. Well, you'll still have to prove yourself to me, but only because, you know, the quest designer can't really completely nix their quest that they spent, you know, hundreds of hours on. But at least the dialogue and the overall narrative is everyone kind of treating you a little bit differently and better. Yeah. uh, Right. And that's what makes it amazing. But why did it fail? Because while the level itself is so good and like the area is really expansive and it's really rich, it's almost too rich because players never leave the hinterlands and because the context for the hinterlands never ushers you out. Yeah. And so while the hinterlands is an amazing foundational narrative and the systems and the mechanics and the story and the context and you interacting with people works really, really well. It breaks down only in that 
when you go to the hinterlands, this is just, just this very specific thing. When you go to the hinterlands for the first time, you were supposed to leave the hinterlands right after. And there was no gate to force you out. Well, not just a, well, not just a no gate. I mean, you, you could force someone, but also like the game is actively like dissuading you from doing it. Yep. So, so, so the perverseness of the hinterlands in Dragon Age Inquisition is that because it has these like recursively engaging elements, it's actually sort of like it's like the game equivalent of an addiction. Like you're you're, you're sort of addicted to this level, but precisely because like you then you then can't progress. It's sort of the perversion of addiction itself. Like, you know, people like take drugs or like drink alcohol because there is something about it that either is pleasurable or sort of like, you know, helps them deal with the, you know, the crappiness of their life. But the problem is, is that that then builds into this cycle where it's like, well, I'm just, okay, I feel good or this is dealing with this thing. So I'm just going to keep doing this over and over and over again. And sort of like, this is then like the game equivalent of that. It's like the game can't itself get over well, I think that's also a breakdown, too, of I call it the level design problem because I think it was a breakdown of direction as well, because in order to truly progress the hinterlands in the way that the narrative or the, the overall designer driven narrative wanted you to progress, yeah. they needed you to leave so that you could come back with more knowledge. Yeah. But the issue and then and then once you came back with that knowledge, you'd have a purpose to yeah. guide you. But because the direction of the game systems and the mechanics and those interactions, like you were saying, was like addicting. Yeah. And because they didn't give you any sort of wall that said, well, now you have to leave. Yeah. There was a misconstruction of direction. There yeah. was the direction of go off and now you can explore. The game has opened to you. But then conversely, another misdirection of, but we need you to go back now. And there was no true going back mechanic. Yeah. Um, eh. I mean, yeah, it, honestly, with the production of that game, like <laughs> the fact that the problem they have is that their game was just too good, too fast. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'll take that problem. <laughs> um, that, that is that that actually is a very good, very good problem to have. Um, yeah. So, so, Lauren, that has been absolutely fantastic. Like, I think that's actually a really great um, introduction to the level design experience. And I and I want to thank you for sharing that with everybody. Thank you for having me, Nicholas. This has been an absolutely great experience, and I love the podcast. I can't wait to come back. Yeah, we should have you on... back again sometime. This has been a really fantastic experience. You've been a great guest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're not committing to that bit. Uh, I, but I do <laughs> I want to commit to that bit, but I, I don't. Well, I want to leave everybody with knowing, though, that if you want to get more in-depth right into these discussions with me, you can find us on the Food Debashi Patreon at patreon.com slash Yep. Um, and oh, and that's true. So well, something I should note is that something that we have been producing is that we've been producing some like um, game design 101 type things and we have been accruing them over time. And if you literally just do a tag search for game design 101, it will bring them up. Some of them are in front of the paywall. Some of them will be behind the paywall. But, you know, that's a good reason to pay us, pay us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a reason to support us, right? Every yeah. every single time you give to us on Patreon, you're actually giving to us producing more of this stuff. Yep. But really, you're going to only fuel your own education because we're really driven by what you want to learn and not really yes. by what we want to talk about. And that's kind of how I am as a designer. Like, what kind of experience do you want to get? So if you come to our Patreon now, 
we're going to open up more tiers probably here at the end of summer where we'll have even more advanced coursework and yep. maybe videos to actually go into detail on these things. So get in early so that you can fuel whatever you want to talk about versus just, you know, getting what we have to say. So unless that's what you want to hear, then, uh, then thanks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>